0: Hey, it's Joe. I'm about to watch what is lining up to be a beautiful sunrise
1: in Helena, Montana. I work graveyards It's about quarter to six in the morning, um, and I'm supposed to be working, but I decided to blow that shit off to check out the beautiful sunrise that's about to happen. Thanks for teaching
0: me what carpe fucking diem means, Uncle Chris. Take care, y'all. Bye.
2: Hello, Chris and fellow listeners to this podcast. I'm Barbara, I'm from the Netherlands, I'm in my early fifties and at the moment I'm on Workaway in Northern Italy in a small mountain village. I help a small family with their permaculture garden and I want to let you all know that is Workaway is not only for young people to see the world even if you're in your fifties or maybe sixties you can do this and it's a great way to meet people who think like you after I arrived here, I discovered that my hosts are very active in ayahuasca ceremonies. So I was so surprised and uh, maybe this summer I can join one of the ceremonies. Hi to you all!
1: Hello Chris, my name is Felix from Stuttgart, Germany. I work here in a hospital as a physician assistant like in the operation room. It's very interesting and I just got out of the cold shower. After
0: a Wim Hof breathing session, and it was very refreshing.
1: Please keep on doing your podcast, Chris. I really enjoy it. I can't wait for new
3: episodes to come out, so keep on doing it. Thank you. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you, Joe, Barbara, and Felix, for those uh, windows into three very different worlds, and uh, three very beautiful worlds. And I hope you all are doing great out there, wherever you are. This episode is with Mr. Dean Radin, really interesting dude, parapsychologist, bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering, Ph.D. in educational psychology, which means I should have said Dr. Dean Radin. My apologies. Um, Dean worked at uh, Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh uh man all over the place he was at the university of nevada in las vegas and he is now a senior scientist at the institute of noetic sciences in petaluma california um dean has served on the dissertation committees at sabra graduate school and research center my alma mater uh he has known stanley krippner for years stanley as you may know is uh was my professor and a friend when I was there and still my friend. Um, Dean Radin is a very serious dude. In other words, he is highly educated, very thoughtful and has spent decades researching. Mm, he doesn't like the word paranormal. And I understand why he explains why in our conversation, uh, researching things that uh, we have difficulty explaining, we have difficulty understanding, we have difficulty measuring. And uh, he's come up with some uh, very clever ways of getting our hands around uh, some phenomena that are extremely difficult uh, to understand and to fit into the worldview that most of us are working with. And before I forget, I want to thank Miguel Romero, a friend of mine who is much more knowledgeable about this area of research uh, than I am. And uh, Miguel was kind enough to send me uh, some areas that he thought I should um, explore with Dr. Radin. And and I've got a a conversation with Miguel coming up soon. Uh, He and I talked. About a lot of things, but uh, particularly uh, UFOs, which uh, is another area that is uh, extremely interesting and getting a lot of action right now. It You know, and this is one of the things that Miguel and I talk about. It's like, are there more UFO sightings now? Or is it just that the mainstream media is more willing to talk about it? Or is the... Pentagon, for some reason, wants us to be focused on these things because they used to have no comment, and now they're saying, yep. Weird things happening out there. A lot of weird things. Uh, Other housekeeping situation. I was on Mike Mayer's podcast recently. It's uh, fascinating. It's called Take a Breath. Uh, You can find it on YouTube or just Google Take a Breath podcast. Uh he's a fascinating guy, really smart dude. So, I was on there chatting with him. I wanted to mention to you that there's a Reddit thread if you are one of the 7,000 people who have um subscribed to the tangentially speaking Reddit thread. Uh, there's a really, or subreddit, I guess it's called, there's a really interesting conversation where somebody said, so what jobs do you guys have? Like what, you know, people listen to tangentially speaking, what kind of work do they do? And last time I checked, there were over a hundred people who had talked about what work they do, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, how they got into it. Um, how hard it is to, uh, find a place in this particular field and man, it's all over the place. There's so many ways to make a living out there that none of us have ever heard of, you know? Um, I mean, you may have heard of some of them, but I may have heard of others, but we all have a very partial vision of all the different things that people do to pay the bills. And, uh, it's really interesting to hear those stories of how people, get into um, these different uh, fields and and uh, what their experience is. So I encourage you, if you are a Redditor, go to the Tangentially Speaking subreddit and take a look at that and uh, tell us what you do. And a lot of people aren't doing it yet. They're training, uh, they're you know thinking about it. I guess maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think the person who started the thread was just sort of like, thinking, you know, looking for some career um, information and, uh, you know, sort of get a sense of what's out there. And it sort of blew up. It's very cool. I'd love to see that happening. Um, yeah, and I also wanted to mention something else. I got a very, very interesting email a couple of weeks ago now uh, from a person who wanted to share something with me. And um, they said that they thought that maybe I could understand this experience, um, but they didn't talk about it with most people because it's very difficult uh, to understand. And for people who are close to the person who wrote to me, there could be some emotional reasons um, not to talk to them about it. But I thought I would mention it to you because if anyone listening to this resonates with what I'm about to describe, um, maybe let me know and I can possibly put you in touch with the person who sent me the email um, because they, they sounded very alone and bewildered. And basically, what? this person said and i don't remember if it was a man or a woman or if i know if if the name might have not told me but in any case the gist of of what they said was that they don't experience their lives as if or their life as if um there's continuity between moments and experiences it's as if each experience each moment is unique and disconnected from everything that's come before it and there's a sort of exhausting uh, constant novelty that's happening and a, a sort of absence or or um, uh, like a, an, an emptiness of... Emotional content, because of that lack of continuity, and if you're listening to to this, the person who wrote to me, and I'm not describing this properly, I apologize I don't have your email in front of me, and my internet is out um so i I can't even pull it up to look at it um, but this is what I remember of it and and they said that it's difficult to talk about with other people because it's as if they don't remember the person like mother, sister, cousin, friend, next door neighbor. Each time they see them, it's like they're seeing them for the first time and they don't, there's not like a a continuity of emotional meaning and history and context. It's as if each experience is without context. And, um, yeah, it's, from a psychological perspective it's very interesting to think about what that must be like it's almost like a almost like a, um um what's the word the, the people who, who lose all memory um like a memento i don't know if you've seen the film memento where the guy each night when he goes to sleep he wakes up the next morning total blank doesn't remember anything that has happened before but he starts to realize that he's not remembering, and so he tattoos um clues on his body so that when he wakes up the next morning he he'll look at his body and see like uh, a clue as to who he is and what he's doing. Really fascinating to think about like what are experiences removed from context. You know, if you woke up each morning and met your partner for the first time, looked at her for the first time, um, what would that be like? I mean, there would be aspects of it that were hmm, probably great in some ways because novelty is something that we seek. Um, but I imagine it would be, yeah, exhausting. Anyway, if if any of that, I, I know that I didn't explain that very clearly, but I feel like it's the kind of thing that defies clear explanation. But um, if that strikes a, a, a resonant note in you, um, well, maybe get in touch and, and maybe I can put you together with the person who wrote to me, because it sounds like uh, I think he or she mentioned that they'd spoken to some therapists and whatever, and nobody really understood um, what was going on and how to help. So very interesting. I think people are, it's one of the reason I, I loved Oliver Sacks' work so much that, you know, he would, he was a neuroscientist who was fascinated with people who had unique or, or very unusual neurological, configurations and um you know he's very compassionate and and fascinated in uh, how the mind is capable of configuring itself in so many bizarre fascinating ways um yeah and uh I think there's so much more going on then we have language for um, in in the minds of ourselves and and everyone else, and that's uh, you know what this episode is about as well. Um, Dr. Radin has spent his lifetime looking at phenomena that um, don't fit into preexisting categories, and for which it's very difficult to design a category because we're at the very beginning of understanding what is happening, much less how it happens or why it happens or how to measure it and categorize it. I was thinking I think about this stuff a lot. I was watching this documentary the other night, um, one of these BBC documentaries with uh uh what's his name? The uh, old dude who goes around the world and talks about nature and uh, Sir Sir Richard Attenborough, anyway it's it was about um color and ultraviolet spectrum in nature and and um they're talking about a butterfly and how this butterfly has these very bright spots on its wings and um even though these bright spots attract predators, um they're favored by females. So the males with the brightest spots uh, have the most mating opportunity. So these bright spots get passed on because the females are attracted to these bright spots. And, you know, they have various scientists explaining this story, this narrative. And this one always gets to me because it's like, okay, that's the story. And it seems to explain things. But if you really think about it, what the fuck does it explain? Why are females attracted to bright spots? Right? Why? Um, You know, you look at it and you say, well, if having bright spots attracts predators, then that's not a, a sign of fitness. Why would a female want her offspring to be more vulnerable to predators? What's the payoff for her? Uh, and we see this in in lots of different species where it's you know sexual selection, <coughs> excuse me, drives these aesthetic um, considerations or or aesthetic uh, evolutionary traits and, and flow in in various species. And yet no one really can explain in most cases why the female of a species is particularly attracted to, you know, this color, that color, this design, that design. Is there just some sort of aesthetic consideration that female butterflies and beetles and praying mantises and all these other things, are they all just sort of like stroking their chins and saying, Oh, I like a man with a red tie. I like a man with a blue tie. Like, like what's going on? Why, why? And I'm familiar with, I think the, all of the scientific arguments, many of which are that, uh, you know, having this disadvantage, like a peacock's tail, um, shows that the male is so strong and so clever that he can evade predators, even carrying around this big disadvantage, this big tail, like, okay, I guess I mean this only makes sense if male survival beyond mating is not uh mating like once is not um valued because any male walking around with a big target on his back is much more likely to to get eaten. So it seems like a major disadvantage for the males, and like I said, a disadvantage for the male offspring of the female. So that doesn't really make sense. I, I, maybe I'm just dumb, but I feel like there are a lot of things where we tell stories as a way to explain things. But the stories describe, they don't explain. You know, Uh, today or last night, a Chinese satellite out of control crashed through the atmosphere and landed in the Indian Ocean and didn't kill anybody. Good news. Why did it fall? Gravity. Right. And we and Newton all the way back to Newton explain how gravity works. We've got formulas, pretty precise how gravity works through space. Uh, But those are descriptions. Nobody, to my knowledge, has explained actually how gravity works. How does one object affect force on another object millions of miles away? how does it do that there's no connection there's no rope there's no string there's no there's no physical connection whatsoever and yet somehow across vast distance the moon reaches down and makes the ocean water move in tides because of gravity so we've got a name for it gravity But how does it do that? I don't think anybody knows. But as long as we have a name for it, we don't really need to worry about it, do we? Strange shit. All right. I'm going to play you out with a song called Living in a Dream. Pretty obvious why I chose that song. And the song itself is very groovy and dreamy. I like it. The band is K-Bong. Spelled like it sounds, K-Bong, living in a dream. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dean Radin. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This episode is totally 100% commercial free.
2: Living in a dream, I heard a voice calling, but I could barely see. Could not distinguish this life from my reality. I reached out my hand to see what it would bring for me. Just like the night sky, stars shining bright. Sun, moon, set, rise, and they it by I can see the shadows of the trees swaying in the wind Right branch from this tree Right down to the leaves far in the roots Foundation underneath Cause our foundation, yeah, we started from the sea But what if you could fly? What if you could swim? Choose your own path Bring it up from within is the calling of a lifetime Now see the sign the Signs turn to blurs Lights and the curves Mesmerize my eyes Come embrace it for the next turn What will we find in the universe? I fell asleep and when I woke up I was living in a dream I heard a voice calling Really see could not distinguish this life from my reality I reached out my hand to see what it would bring for me. sounds develop into echoes Traveling through the space of this temple Look what we've built with our hands Carved out from lands Created to be dwellings for us to lay our heads Only time will tell and show us the evidence But what if every star was a sign for someone below Help them to grow Nurturing and furthering our souls So they can go The world up above Could be reflections of us Feeling and concealing all the past And past we took I think I'll slow down Take another look I fell asleep and when I woke up I was living in a dream I heard a voice calling But I could barely see could not distinguish this life from my reality. I reached out my hand to see what it would bring for me.
3: Raiden. And I'm very happy that you agreed to do this, sir. This is uh, an honor for me. I've been hearing about you and reading about your research for years and years. Um, as we discussed in uh, <clears throat> leading up to this, uh, we have a common connection through Stanley Kripner, and he speaks admiringly of you quite often. So thanks for doing this.
1: It's my pleasure.
3: Um, I guess I, I, we should probably start by uh, you, were a music, you were a musician, a quite serious musician, or you are a musician, but you considered a career in music, is that right, in, in violin? I did.
1: Uh, I had assumed, as most of my family and friends did, that I would become a concert violinist because that's mostly what I did for about 20 years, starting at age five. Uh, and I, I learned over the course of that time that, uh, first of all, I asked friends who were in the music business, including uh, one who played in, uh, on Broadway shows, and everyone uniformly said, if you can do anything other than music as a profession, then do that. And, and the reason was that it, it is incredibly difficult to be a professional musician in terms of being able to make a reasonably steady living. Yeah. Uh, and so I took that to heart. And in addition, none of my violin teachers ever said that to to especially to be a, a concert violinist, where you're playing solo and traveling and all that, you need to be an athlete. And I had never thought of being a musician like being an athlete, but it's absolutely true. And my body is not the body of an athlete. Mm. So it it was not easy for me to play. I, I would practice sometimes hours a day, but it, it was always on the edge of exhausting. So when I got the advice that maybe you want to go do something else, I, I said, Oh, okay. That's that sounds good.
3: Yeah. But do you miss the, I I mean, I guess where I'm going with this is, is, is there a connection between what you ended up doing uh, in terms of research into, um, I I don't want to, paranormal, uh, parapsychological phenomenon? Is is that an accurate description of of what you've done in your career? Yes.
1: Yeah. So do I miss... Playing music?
3: Well, yeah. And, and and what is the connection? Because I'm not a musician, but I I find music to be one of the great mysteries of life. Um, and I love being immersed in the sort of incomprehensible um, nature of music. And so I wonder, is there a connection in you? Do you see some commonality between your musical talents, and your your scientific talents?
1: I would say so many of the scientists that I know, uh, have either played music as children or continue to play as adults. So, and in particular, uh, I would say, a higher percentage than you might think, uh, turn out to be mathematicians. So there's there's definitely a mathematics to music theory, and i i think it uh while it's of course an extremely different way of of being uh in music than it is in mathematics the relationships they're there the resonances there's something that it seems to attract uh people on both sides so i think for for me the reason why it uh, did not seem i mean i would kind of sad to, to to drop the music since they had spent so much time on it. But on, on my music stand for many years, at least 10 years, I had a little sign on the top that said, learn to listen. And this is one of the things my my teachers were always telling me that when you play a, a non fretted uh, stringed instrument, the uh, intonation is I- incredibly important. And so you have to listen to yourself all the time to make sure you're, you're still on tune. But there's a side effect of that too. If you're practicing hours a day and you have a message in front of you that says learn to listen, then playing becomes a kind of meditation, it's like a moving meditation. And so even though I didn't think of it as meditation at the time, looking back on it, I was doing a kind of meditation for at least 10 years. And that I think sparked an interest then in, well, what else can the mind do? And this comes about because after you play an instrument for a number of years, the mechanics of playing it are not something that you're doing consciously. So I would find after practicing uh, an hour or two hours, sometimes four hours a day, that I could read a book while practicing, hmm. could read a book and watch TV while practicing. And, and this, of course, is not something that I would recommend. But after a while, as I said, the mechanics of doing it, even though it could be a very complicated piece, and you might need to uh, remember a 90 minute performance, it all becomes completely automatic. And so I had a lot of time to, to do a contemplation while doing all of that practice.
3: Hmm. Do you think that someone like Bach, when he was writing his music, was he engaged in a paranormal practice? Someone like Bach or Mozart or Beethoven, who just seemed to be so far beyond even the range of, of talent um, is there something there that aligns with um, the paranormal? Well,
1: possibly. We're talking about genius and not just in method, in, uh, in music, but in, in other domains as well, in art and science and math and so on. And we have no idea of uh, how people can be geniuses. So there's a bit of a... Of a curiosity here, in that uh, the whatever was going on in our world-famous artists that we we now recognize as genius, there's no question that they were able to do what they did. Their 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 acts have changed the course of history in some ways. And yet, if you look at uh, slightly other kinds of equally mysterious phenomena like clairvoyance or telepathy. We don't necessarily immediately say, oh, okay, yeah, they are able to do that. Uh, the, the reasons, of course, is that something like telepathy is a private experience and it, it's not so easy to demonstrate like it would be in Mozart creating a, a symphony. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, when you, you try to drill down into how are they doing what they do, there's a mystery on both sides. And the question that you're asking is is the mystery connected in some way i would say that it probably is uh, that's a guess because we don't really know but if you look at what uh, famous musicians and artists have said and also scientists say well where did you get your inspiration to do this and they describe it as it was it was always there it just fell out of the sky it showed up in my awareness and i just wrote it down Mm-hmm. Well, that's not that dissimilar from the way that psychics describe the information they're getting. They don't know where it comes from. It just shows up. And so this suggests that we may all have or at least some may have it in, to a better extent, but have the capacity to be able to access information that's somehow out there. And that, that's then the commonality.
3: Right. So there's like a channeling happening. Right. Do you think that um, all people have an innate ability to do this uh, that maybe is diminished through education or just the more sort of verbal consciousness that we acquire as we age or perhaps that has been diminished by civilization Um, where do you stand on that? Do you? Is this something that everyone has, and we have lost most of us? Or is it a very unusual phenomenon? innately?
1: I think we're talking about what amounts to a talent. And just like there's musical or sports talent, uh, everybody can play tennis, more or less, but not very many are going to end up at Wimbledon. And and the same is true in this domain. Some people just naturally arrive with talents in this domain and they're exceptionally good at it. And they didn't have to learn anything or practice or do anything. They're just there, uh, probably the majority of others can learn certain tips and tricks to access this kind of information better. And then there's also a minority that just cannot access this at all. And because it's not part of their experience, they would look at stories about these things and consider it to be pure fantasy. And anyone who's talking about such things then would be crazy because it's, it's just completely outside their experience. So beyond raw talent, yes, culture plays a big role in, in what people are allowed to think and talk about. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, I think most of us have been shaped by evolution to pay very close attention to what's happening in our local vicinity. You want to pay attention to the tiger that's 20 feet away, not the tiger that's 2 million years ago on Pluto. So I think we have the capacity to do that. And the talented people can do it a lot better. But evolution has shaped our probably our brain and cognitive processing to exclude most of that information. And one of the ways that I one of the reasons why I see that is because probably the the most common email that I get is from somebody who is disturbed by visions or voices or other forms of information that is intruding on their sense of self. And so they think it, it, the experience feels like you're 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 being inundated by the universe, and it's disturbing, and people want to stop it. So there's two ways of thinking about that. One is there's a psychiatric problem. They're neurologically compromised in some way. The other possibility is that they're super psychic and they don't know how to control it. And they're, they're driven crazy by the inability to control these kinds of, of connections. So you can see then from an evolutionary perspective, why people would be shaped in such a way as to remain very grounded and very stable, but only in your local environment even though
3: you have the capacity
1: to look at Pluto a million years ago.
3: Do do you think this sort of phenomenon that you're describing aligns with um, the shamanism, uh, sort of a a call to shamanize, as it's described by anthropologists, um, and possibly with something that would be diagnosed in our world as... um, psychic or not psychic, uh, a break, uh, a psychological break or a a tendency towards schizophrenia.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in other uh, indigenous societies, the children who seem to have these kinds of talents would be identified early in life, and then trained to become the shaman, or the the medicine person. Uh, Because every every tribe seems to have some people who have this natural talent. And the talent is extremely useful in a shamanistic sense. Uh, in the modern world, we don't tend to use it as much. Although a case can be made that people who are exceptionally successful in their business, whatever it happens to be, it could be entertainment or industry or whatever, that, that people who learn that they can trust their intuition are, in a sense, modern day shaman. Except that they might work in a bank, or they they might work on movies or something like that. So, uh, except for the one shaman who showed up uh, in shamanistic gear at the Capitol and was uninvited, (laughs) well, that's that's kind of a a pseudo shaman. For sure, but there are real ones out there too.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let, let's try to uh, nail down exactly what it is that we're talking about. I know that you've uh, done research in telepathy, um, in sort of um, uh, what we might call paranormal brain functioning. Um, are you also interested in phenomenon like reincarnation or um, remote viewing? Like, wh- what is the sort of range of your research?
1: So I've studied every kind of psychic phenomena. I, I avoid the word paranormal, because the the paranormal is such a wide range, including everything from Bigfoot and UFOs and beyond, mm-hmm. that the, those are not able to be studied in the laboratory. And I'm an experimentalist. So I, I tend to want to be able to see these kinds of things under control conditions, which means you have to bring it into the lab. So among the different kinds of phenomena that can be studied are telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, otherwise known as remote viewing, precognition, and psychokinesis, or mind-matter interactions. So those four major classes uh, of, um, of types of phenomena that people report, and within each of those classes there's a number of subclasses. And in terms of survival type phenomena, I have not studied reincarnation. I know the literature, but that's not what I study. Uh, Rather, uh, we've done some studies myself and my colleagues on mediumship and on channeling because both of them can be brought into the lab and you can learn things that way. So uh, earlier in my career, I also did some investigation of haunted sites until I realize that uh, it is mostly a gigantic waste of time. And I don't like to waste time. So it is not the case that hauntings uh, occasionally have something strange happen. But the ratio is, I would say, uh, something like a 1000 hours for every 10 minutes of something interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I can understand why people are attracted to the haunting cases, because uh, they're they're very very odd, uh, and the ten minutes for some people will be enough. Uh, but I have lots of other things I want to do, so I've decided for the other nine hundred and ninety nine hours I could have been doing something more fruitful. So I kind of gave up on haunting investigation. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's interesting how um, I think one of the frustrations of this sort of research is that people will say, um, you know, so-and-so has been exposed as a fraud because they were caught um, using some sort of trickery. Um, Stanley, as you know, uh, was trained as a magician when he was young, uh, as uh, many of the skeptics, you know, Stanley sort of, as I understand it, he sort of uh, got a foot in, in both worlds of legitimate researchers and also he's this skeptical world Um, but I remember speaking with him about this one time and he said the problem is that a lot of people have these abilities innately and they're able to um, you know experience telepathy read someone's thoughts or, or you know choose the right card from the deck or whatever it is but then some, as you said earlier, they don't control these these flows of information. It happens or it doesn't. And a lot of them, when the information or the the, the knowledge isn't available to them, they learn to compensate because they don't like to disappoint people. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with someone who actually has some legitimate... Uh, experience beyond the realm of what's understood, but they can't call it up every time people ask them to so they learn to compensate. Um, is that is that something that you've experienced? Have you worked with, you know, so called psychics or or people who are able to uh, read thoughts, and then you catch them compensating for the absence of, of that ability?
1: I have seen that, but that is generally uh, people who blur the distinction between a, a stage magician and a psychic. Yeah. Uh, we tend not to work with those people. Uh, in fact, we we found that uh, if you go out and find people who say they're psychic, in the laboratory, they, they can't cheat. So the whole point of doing a controlled study is that we, we are specifying the environment and the protocols and so on. And we, we know ways of cheating and we prevent that. So the problem with someone who identifies as being a professional psychic uh, is that they feel more pressure to perform than somebody who we might recruit as a long-term meditator who might not think of themselves as psychic, but nevertheless, they tend to be a lot better than people who don't meditate. So they end up being good subjects in the experiments. Uh, and in the cases where we have worked with professional mediums, for example, these are people who are are so practiced at what they're doing uh, that even then they feel performance anxiety. So we spend a fair amount of time with them, saying, "Just relax," and just "This is we're recording everything, of course, but just." be as relaxed as you can to do this. And whatever the results are, that's what they are. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. So, so that's, so you mentioned about magicians. There are other well-known parapsychologists who are also magicians. Russell Targ was trained that way. Uh, Daryl Bem uh, was um, a member, still is a member of the Psychic Entertainers uh, Association and Lloyd Auerbach and a few others. And while I haven't done performing magic, uh, I have a very large collection of books and gizmos and gadgets uh, that are used in magic. And I the reason why I collected all of this stuff and still do uh, is because I, I I need to know if somebody's cheating. And and so knowing this huge array of different of, of ways of cheating uh, is I figure part of my job. It's I, I need to be at least as uh, adept at understanding how to do things like deception uh, as somebody else because that's what I'm looking at. As, again, as I said, in, the, in our controlled experiments, it is exceptionally difficult for a magician to cheat. And we even bring in magicians occasionally to make sure that that's the case. Uh, so we know then that the dozen or so uh, primary classes of experiments that are being run by us and by our colleagues around the world, it it would be very, very difficult to cheat.
3: I remember reading about, I think this was your work, um, where, if I remember correctly, there were images in a computer, um, half of which were soothing and half of which were alarming is this your work and they flashed up randomly and you were measuring yes. physiological responses yeah am i describing yeah, this say, correctly uh-huh
1: yeah this was this is a paradigm i call presentiment to distinguish it from precognition precognition is knowing something before it happens presentiment is feeling something before it happens. So the story that uh, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time is a way of getting around having to have people consciously uh, respond to a target. Because any anytime that you you gain conscious information, it has already passed through many, many layers of uh, processing and uh, emotional filters and unconscious filters of all kinds. So consciously, our experience of the world is a very thin slice of what's out there. And as best as we can tell, psychic information bubbles up from somewhere, we don't know where, but it it is not present in your conscious awareness, it's usually bubbling just below that. So if you ask somebody to consciously do something, and you get results, it's amazing. Uh, But if you're able to do it with physiological measures, uh, it's much, much easier both for the subject, because they don't have to consciously do anything, and it's also easier, I think, in terms of detecting the kinds of effects that we want. So th- this is the, one of the stories that gave rise to this notion of how to do the experiment. So I worked with a guy who, who liked to go hunting with his buddies. So they, of course, they uh, they bring a whole bunch of guns out when they go hunting, and. Uh, my friend had a a few guns, one of which was a, um, a double actions, um, six shot revolver. So in a double action, it means you, you pull the trigger, it, it rotates the cylinder, pulls back the hammer, and then the hammer hits the next, the bullet in the next cylinder, all in one motion. And so, uh, for, for safety's sake, he would keep the hammer over an empty chamber, just so it wouldn't actually get jostled or something. And then he took all the bullets out, cleaned the gun. And now he has five bullets to put back into a six-chamber six, uh, six chamber revolver. And he puts in one, two, three, four, five. And as he's holding the fifth bullet to put it in, he gets a really bad feeling. And he didn't know what it meant, but he felt something was wrong with that bullet. So he set it aside. So two weeks go by, now he's out with his friends. They spend all day hunting. He had not used his pistol. It was it was left uh, back at the cabin. So they all come back to the cabin. They start doing what hunters should not do, especially with guns around. They start drinking. A fight breaks out between two of his friends. Uh, one of them picks up his pistol, which was just laying there, and then points it point-blank at the other guy he was arguing with. Well, my friend jumps up, intervenes, say, by getting between the two, And it's too late because the other one's already pulling the trigger. He sees the cylinder revolve, the hammers pulled back, and then it, it hits the next chamber, which instead of going bang and blowing his head off, went click, because that was where the fifth bullet was that he took out. So I asked him then, well, what do you mean that you felt something wrong with the bullet? He kept the bullet. the way he joked with it he said everyone has a bullet with their name on it and he's keeping his he knows where it is so there was nothing particularly strange about the bullet but he just felt bad and so this is a pre-feeling he's like two weeks in the future something really horrific is about to happen and he possibly changed his future as a result of feeling it somehow so What we do in the laboratory is we can't put people in actual danger, but what we can do is manipulate emotion. And so you're sitting down in front of a computer and we wire you up very similar to the way that you would be with a polygraph machine. And we present some images that are very calm, like a picture of a, of a forest scene with a lake or something like that, a whole bunch of pictures like that. And then other pictures, which are highly emotional. It could be a car wreck, it could be a surgery, it could be an explosion, things like that. They're randomly scrambled. So nobody knows what's what's in the pool other than we've already set up the pictures. And then we record physiology continually. And just before the picture shows up, we use a a random number generator to select one of the pictures at random. So nobody knows what the future is going to be. And then the picture is shown. And then the picture goes away we record the physiological response. And then we do this cycle 30 or 40 times for each subject, and then later analyze the results to see, is the person's physiology the same or different before the calm or emotional pictures? The hypothesis is that if your future is is always, you're always perceiving it in some fashion, even if there's no way to know what that is, if your awareness is reaching out into the future and bubbling up and, and uh, detectable through physiological differences, then there should be a physiological difference seen some number of seconds before the image appears that is um, coherent with, uh, with the emotionality of the picture. So then before an emotional picture, become, you become emotional, and before a calm picture, you remain calm. And that is what we saw. So. I did the first experiment in in 96, and uh, since then, there have been about 40 replications by a number of labs around the world, and overall, there's very little doubt that this is a real effect that people do get unconscious information about their futures between around a half a second to about nine seconds in advance,
3: except for the Hunter, where it was a couple of weeks in advance
1: yes Hmm. and that was a case where it's a good way of showing the difference between a laboratory study and what happens in real life so psychic phenomena in real life tend to be really big like you big big things happen people die there are explosions all kinds of stuff happens that that seems to pull our attention in a way that you can't do in a laboratory study right so all of the lab studies are are weak phenomena because you know you can't do big things to people. But fortunately, it's under such tight control that we can gain very high confidence that an effect is real, even though it is not the sort of dramatic thing that that happens in real life.
3: So what you're measuring is what heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductivity, that sort of thing?
1: Yes, and pupil dilation and brain waves and anything that we can measure having to do with your physiological state.
3: And is this something that you see across the board or is it some people uh, experience these phenomena, these sort of pre sentiment uh, reactions and others don't.
1: It, it Again, we're looking at talent. Some people respond much more reliably than others, but the, size of the effects that we see in these experiments are roughly 10 times the size that we see in experiments requiring a conscious response. Mm. And that that is across the board. So, so some people are exceptionally good at it. Some people are not so good. But in general, the effect sizes are much, much bigger.
3: Have you seen a correlation between people who have this type of ability and other characteristics of personality or race or age or male versus female or anything like that?
1: Yeah, there's, there's less known about that. But there are some studies suggesting that uh, the psychological trait called openness is correlated with performance in these kinds of tasks. So that we're we're using typically a, a personality inventory called the big five, five factors. One of the factors is openness, the degree to which you're open to new experience. That usually shows up as a positive correlation Mm. with with performance. Uh, Another correlate is belief. People who tend to believe that these phenomena are real tend to get much better results. And in fact, for people who strongly believe that it is not real... They might get significant results, but it'll go in the opposite direction almost as though unconsciously they have such a strong need to not see this stuff that they actually do see it, but they suppressed and it goes backwards so in in the business, we call it psi missing it's still statistically significant except it's in the wrong direction, <laughs> so we see that,
3: yeah, where do you fall in this personally because? You know, your your training as a musician suggests openness or possibly, uh, I don't know, a, a discipline, I guess, a disciplined mind. And then you studied engineering, uh, which, you know, in general, engineers are sort of known for not being particularly open to new or mysterious experience. Um, what? Where do you fall in these various spectra?
1: Well, uh, in, in terms of laboratory performance, they usually do pretty well. Uh, usually a lot better in tasks that involve mind-matter interaction, um, possibly because I've just been doing it for so long. I have learned, or maybe I'm talented, I don't, I don't know. But generally I do well in those tasks. For other kinds of tasks like remote viewing, I, I don't do any better than the average person. So I'm, in general, on perceptual tasks, I don't do as well as what might be called action type tasks. Mm. And by the way, and it is, it's true that a lot of people think that scientists and engineers uh, would not experience these things. But I was suspicious about that the common knowledge because I know a lot of scientists and engineers are just f- fabulously interested in these things and even have some talent in, case, in some cases. So we did a survey a few years ago uh, where we hired a company to give us names of people who were willing to uh, participate in questionnaires, and also those people who had filled out demographics so we knew their age and gender and so on, but we also knew their profession. So we were particularly interested in a subset of the general population, which are scientists and engineers, and the way that we made the uh, the survey was not asking about their beliefs in psychic phenomena but about their experiences and we described the experiences without using any sensitive psychic terms just experiences like did you ever have the feeling of being stared at and looked and found that you were those kinds of things so we had 25 questions and we asked uh, the general population and the subset of scientists and engineers uh, have you ever had any of these 25 different experiences any one of which would have been considered something like a psychic phenomenon and so we we were surprised that among the general population 93 percent or sorry 94 percent of the general population had experienced personally at least one of the 25 experiences and on average about seven of 25. so the subset of scientists and engineers 93% had experienced at least one and an average eight of the 25. Hmm. So it's probably not the case. Like the stereotype is the super analytical scientist or engineer who's never this never happens to them. That's just not true. It does happen. The difference is that scientists and engineers learn not to talk about it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The the sort of there's an essay I forget the author's name, but it's called "The Myth of Mechanism," um, and I believe it was written by a physician, and he was very frustrated about the fact that um, a lot of contemporary research and and clinicians don't want to hear about um, medical techniques that work if you can't explain how they work. Um, Oh, yeah, you know, like mechanism
1: of action is is like the most important thing in medical studies. And in fact, in in almost every study, but in particular, in medical studies, if you don't know the mechanism of action, uh, you're not going to go very far with whatever that happens to be. And, and this is actually not even medicine. It is also true in science, in general, that you could have an observation of some very strange thing and even have it repeatable and have independent repeatability and people still won't believe it until you can give an adequate explanation. And this is this is exactly what we see in, in doing cyber research, right? We have really good evidence that telepathy actually does exist. Multiple lines of repeatable evidence. And yet if you ask a conservative mainstream physicist, what do you think of this? They'll say, "Well, that is impossible because we don't know any way that that could happen."
3: <laughs> but those are two totally different things, right? Whether it happens and how it happens are two completely yes. different questions. And when they're yes. conflated like this, it's nonsense. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, you know, it, in the, this essay, the myth of mechanism, he talks about how no one really understood how aspirin. Uh, blocked pain until the 1970s. Uh You know, and yet it was widely used. Anesthesia still isn't really understood. Um, You know, in terms of of the hard sciences, no one's ever explained to me how gravity works.
1: Yeah, that's because nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs)
3: exactly so so we just accept these these phenomenon for which we do not understand the mechanism and yet when someone like you comes along and says here's a phenomenon for which we don't understand the mechanism this is dismissed it it doesn't make any sense
1: yeah Uh, we we like to imagine that uh, science and scientists are completely rational but of course, scientists are humans, and humans are never completely rational. So we're, we're dealing with uh, sociological pressures and uh, pressures of how, how do how does the what kind of behavior do you need to display in order to fit in with the status quo so that you can live comfortably in the academic world and so on.
3: Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, a couple of components that seem to um maybe contribute to or at least be correlated with uh um, psychic ability uh, one of which was openness um and uh and what was i forget what the other one was that you mentioned um belief sorry belief a belief right right and I know psychic ability tends to be uh hereditary as well. It it seems to have some sort of genetic component. Um, I wonder, you know, openness and belief are both culturally um, determined to some extent. Some cultures are more open to these sorts of things than others and and believe them to be true. Um, I wonder whether there is research showing any sort of correlation between the use of psychedelics and um i mean in my own personal experience i found that the use of psychedelics has certainly nourished whatever sense of openness i may have had Mm pre-existing um do you know is there any research in this
1: the there's very little overlap there's a gigantic anecdotal database of Uh, People take certain psychedelics and report very strong telepathic experiences and remote viewing and so on. Very little formal research has been done, uh, primarily because uh, up until very recently, it was illegal or difficult, very difficult to get uh, permission to do experiments involving psychedelics. And whenever you're dealing with controversial topics, uh, it's usually not a good idea to mix the topics together <laughs> because it, it's a little like creating a binary bomb. Yeah, Like e- each component is kind of dangerous, but you put them together, it's just completely explosive. And so we, for years, I- at, at the Institute of Noetic Sciences where I work, we've, we know that all these stories about psychedelics and how it seems to enhance certain uh, capabilities so there's two issues then. Well, first of all, we don't want to be known as the place that are doing drug t- trials because we don't want to do that. Uh, and the other thing is that when somebody is in the midst of some kind of uh, intoxication, whatever it happens to be, they generally don't want to participate in experiments. Their experience is so overwhelming and so different that the idea of doing an experiment is laughable. So we have to devise experiments where they don't or they're not asked to do anything, And so this is where physiological experiments can come into play. and so we we have discussed with some of the more prominent groups out there who are doing research with psilocybin on uh, could we do an experiment where we wire somebody up to look at their physiology and do various kinds of mild stimuli? We're not going to present highly emotional pictures, but we can do experiments where we show something like a a little pinpoint of light that just shows up every so often, or a little beeping sound. And we've that's the approach that we took with uh, highly advanced meditators. So you whenever you're dealing with somebody who's in some kind of an altered state, you have to be very careful not to push them too much. So we asked the meditators, these all had a, a, a average of 20 years of daily practice. And a non-dual form of meditation, like uh, Zogchen. so uh, we said if if you were wearing glasses that occasionally would would flash a little light in it, do you think you can maintain the meditative state? Yes. And if you were earing had earbuds and heard a little beep every so often would would you be able to maintain the state? Yes. So we selected eight of these meditators all of whom had also said that they, during meditation, would regularly experience feelings of spaciousness, meaning that their sense of space would expand, and also timelessness, that their sense of time would, would sort of spread out. So we figured, okay, this is, the timelessness part would be a way to see, are, is, are they ontologically actually spread out in time? Well, if we do a light flash and their brain, shows an effect before the light flash shows up then that would support their claim that they're spread out somehow so we did that experiment and sure enough we found that in the meditators uh, about a second and a half before the stimulus we saw an effect a significant change in their brain activity and in controls the eight controls are people who never meditated before we saw nothing we saw no difference so I strongly suspect that uh, when it becomes easier and easier to eventually do studies involving psychedelics, that we will be able to confirm that some of those experiences are correct. That it, they, people feel spread out in space and time, and that's, in fact, probably what's happening.
3: Do you know of any research that uh, incorporates uh, float tanks into this sort of re- you know, investigation?
1: I, I only know of one that used a flotation tank. Yeah. Um, I, I believe it was a telepathy experiment. And I, if I remember correctly, I think the results were about the same as you get if somebody was not in a flotation tank. Hmm. So it wasn't significantly better. Right. But you, before this, you mentioned about genetics. So it's quite true that any form of performance or behavior is both partially nature and partially nurture. So the nurture part is your culture and how you're brought up and all that, but the nature part is genetics, and it is true that the folklore in every culture in the world and throughout history is that some people and some families just seem to have the skill. They have the shining. They have the the second sight, whatever it's called. So we did a study that was just published about two weeks ago, uh, looking uh, using modern genetic methods to get the full genomes of people who we vetted as being psychic from psychic families and then compared them to match controls gender age and race controls and we did find a difference we found a a difference on a a gene on chromosome 7 that we saw in the psychics that you did not see in the controls so This is the first study of its kind where we're using DNA sequencing and get the entire genome, and then there's all kinds of different analytical techniques that you can use. But besides simply finding that there was a sequence, which was different, uh, one of our co-authors is a sociogeneticist. These are people who look at how uh, whole cultures, the genetics of whole cultures, how they change over time, in historical time. And what he found was a correlation between the, the genetic sequence that we found and the cultural, um, historical cultural group, which is labeled Christianity. So you think of a Holy Roman Empire, plus or minus a country or two, and Christianity is pretty strong there, has been that way for quite a long time. And think of uh, probably over a hundred years of um, the Inquisition burning witches. So would that kind of behavior is a, is a kind of reverse genet- eugenics experiment. It is getting rid of people who have a certain characteristics. So some of them were obviously just innocent people caught up in the, in the craziness of it. But some of them probably were talented. And unfortunately, demonstrated that talent to others and caught the attention of the Inquisition, and that was bad. But what what it would do if if all of that was correct that they were basically doing a, a large scale genetics experiment within historical Christianity by getting rid of people who had these abilities, then their genetics would be different. And that's what we found. We found a suppression of this particular genetic sequence in areas of the world that we could be considered uh, uh, Christianity central. Wow! So that's a secondary way of then uh, evaluating whether the genetic difference that we saw was real or not. It looks like it is real. And it is almost certainly the, the likelihood that other forms of genetic analysis will find many more, what I would call biomarkers, of talent in this domain and by the way the the analysis that is available now is so good in discriminating among different people's talents that we could tell the difference based on genetics as to the kind of intelligence somebody has not not the level not, not like not the IQ number but the kind of intelligence and there's two basic types one's called fluid intelligence and the other's called crystalline intelligence so those adjectives kind of tell you the difference between the two crystalline intelligence is someone who would go into mathematics or engineering. Fluid intelligence is someone who would go into some kind of, of creative arts. The level of intelligence can be identical, but the way it's expressed is different. And there is a genetic basis for that.
3: Fascinating. What, what is your working model Uh, When you think about the human brain, are you, I mean, the two sort of most common images that come to mind are the computer or the radio receiver. Mm -hmm. Do you feel aligned with one of them or do you have a a different model that you use?
1: I I think it's a computerized radio receiver. (laughs) There's clearly it is involved in information processing. So when our our senses get into the brain, it is doing all kinds of calculations. Uh, So that, that part I think is very clearly demonstrated by the neural correlates of consciousness, which is standard neuroscience. All, All of that is good, but it doesn't tell us about where subjective experience comes from. It tells us that the information is processed and so the, we're, we're looking at the world as a as a construction, essentially. Uh, but our sense of awareness is seems to be something quite different. It's not really physical. It's it seems to be something non physical. So I think in that sense, uh, it's kind of a uh, smart receiver. Uh, it's, we're not, we're not perceiving the world as it is, we're always perceiving a Construction of it. Even psychic information is a construction. Probably the closest that we get to non constructing the information is during a mystical experience, which might be sparked by meditation, might be sparked by psychedelics as well. And one of the markers then of getting real information is that it's ineffable. So if somebody has an experience and they come back and they just say, this is the most incredible thing I've ever experienced and say, Oh, tell me about it. And they're, they look dumb for a second and say, I, I can't, mm. I don't have any words to express this. Well, that's probably closer to what's actually going on because the moment we can put words on it, we're already squashing it into what amounts to our everyday experience, which as we know is a construction, it's a little slice of reality.
3: Which leads me to my friend Miguel, who um, uh, I think you you've actually interacted with him on on Twitter a little bit. Um, I think uh, I saw you were interacting with him, and that's what led me to ask you to be on this podcast. Actually, Miguel's a very smart guy, very well versed in. Um, in your research and and i said to him hey um, i'm gonna have dean radin on the podcast what should i talk to him about and he sent me a five-page email (laughs) a whole bunch of different things uh that he suggested i discuss with you but one of them was he said that uh real magic includes a personal anecdote which is in my opinion one of the most interesting synchronicities i've ever heard about uh do you know what he's talking about
1: yeah yeah, it's, uh, I use that synchronicity as an example of, uh, of the power of intention, essentially. Uh, it was a four part synchronicity. Uh, so did you want me to re- retell it?
3: Yes, please, if, if you don't mind. Okay. okay,
1: sure. So the first part is, uh, this was in Silicon Valley in year 2000, when uh, some colleagues and I were creating a nonprofit. To do research in psychic phenomena. So, beginning part of 2000, uh, the dot com craze was still going strong and it was difficult to find office space that wasn't extremely expensive. So, we kept going further and further out. We ended up in Los Altos at a, a, a kind of a industrial strip mall. So, a whole bunch of different uh, professional offices in this space. So we, we got a nice space there. We moved in, and I was responsible for getting everything going. So I, I tended to drive to work, and the, that would lead me into the office in one direction only. And then uh, we f- we found a place to live where I could walk to work. So I walked to work one day using a different route, and I passed by an office that that uh, was called SciQuest, Inc. So PSI, just like Psy, psychic phenomena, uh, PsyQuest Incorporated. And I thought, well, that's, that's a funny synchronicity because we're doing psi research. We use BSI is as, as the first letter of the word psyche in Greek, and it's pronounced psi. So psi is a uh, short um, jargon for the whole realm of psychic phenomena. So they were doing PsyQuest. We don't know what that is. We're doing cyber research, but we didn't call ourselves that. Or we used the name Boundary Institute to be a little bit more obscure about it. But the synchronicity we thought was fun. There's like nearby our our uh, new office is somebody doing PsyQuest, which we thought was Personnel Services Incorporated or something. So another month goes by. I walked to work in this time, slightly different way where I passed directly next to our office, because usually I didn't have to go next to the office. And I noticed a sign on the on the wall that said SciQuest Labs. So now it gets really interesting because what is personnel services doing with the laboratory? And they're right next to us. So I I peek through the mini blinds and most of the time there's no one there. It's dark. One day I I passed by the, the, the office. And I see that the lights are on, I see movement. So I knock on the door and I'm going to introduce myself to talk about this curious coincidence and mainly to find out what, what is PsyQuest doing with the laboratory. So the door opens, there's a man uh, who, who opens the door. And I thought he was going to have a heart attack because he, he started croaking a little bit and said, I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I put out my hand and say, hello, I'm, and he croaks. Dean Radin. And so now I'm kind of disoriented, because how do well, I don't know who you are, or what you're doing. But how do you know who I am? Because we don't, when our sign didn't say anything about who we were. And at that point, there are only about five people on the planet who knew that it was actually there. Because we didn't, we don't like to tell people where our laboratory is. So The long story there is that after he calmed down, and he was really in quite a state of extreme, um, he said uh, he had been, the reason he was so shocked when I showed up is because he had just come off a 24 hour um, uh, dream yoga exercise, a Tibetan dream yoga exercise, which is designed to manifest what you want. And so what he wanted to manifest was me. <laughs> and, and so, you know, what, what, what are you talking about? So this is a process where you sleep for three hours, and then you wake up for three hours, and you do this cycle again, and again, over 24 hours, in both your waking and sleeping time, you hold a very strong intention to achieve a certain goal to manifest it. Well, he wanted to manifest me, not knowing where I was or how to get hold of me, because he had read my first book. And he wanted me to be on his board of directors because he was doing cyber research from a commercial point of view. Like there's nobody in the world doing this. Wow. And yet he was an Apple employee who cashed out and did what he always wanted to do, which was to create a business looking into psychic phenomena to create some kind of technology. So he wanted to find me and he opened the door and there I am. You can you can see why why shocked how he was so shocked he couldn't even speak, and when he told me this, I felt very disoriented because I think I have free will yeah, and exactly yet, apparently I don't have it's not as free as I think it is because he made me show up so
3: yeah we so we, was, we never know when we're being i mean we look at all this from our own perspective right what what strange perceptions have I had what you know, precognitions of I had, but we don't know how we're participating in other people's uh, yeah. perceptions. So, yeah.
1: So what I told you is the second of the four synchronicities. Oh,
3: just there's more. So the,
1: th- the third synchronicity then is he's, he, after he calms down, he says, you want to see my lab? Because we're now comparing notes. We're both, we both have labs that we're developing. Well, on our side, on the other side of the wall, I'm in my office, drawing what I want to have in our lab on our whiteboard. We don't have any equipment yet, but I'm just drawing pictures of what I'd like to have. So what I'd like to have is um, a pretty large shielded room, electromagnetically shielded room. Uh, typically, it's around eight feet cubed with uh, double steel walls. That's the kind of, of shielded room that we generally get, uh, with a special kind of uh, called uh, leather-covered reclining chair called a zero-g chair where you you lie completely flat and your knees are kind of up, so it feels like you're floating and then a whole bunch of physiological equipment. So that, that's what I was drawing on my board. So he says, you want to see my lab? Yeah. So what we go in and see is the eight foot cubed, double steel walled electromagnetically shielded chamber with the leather chair. That's a zero zero G design with a whole bunch of physiological equipment. And now I'm freaking out because I said, well, wait a minute. This is exactly what I've been drawing for the past month that I want to manifest. So we came over and I showed him the whiteboard. And sure enough, it's, it's like I was drawing what was on the other side of the wall without knowing what was there. Wow. So, so the, the upshot of all of this is that you'd think we would join forces and create some kind of thing out of this, because we both had parts of what we wanted. And it turned out that we didn't. So it partially, in fact, largely in retrospect, it was because right around that time is when the dot com uh, crash occurred. So like, you know, the the bubble burst, and suddenly there wasn't any money anywhere. So we couldn't keep our nonprofit going. Mm -hmm. And he was struggling to keep his for profit going. So the, the, the the timing, uh, was not optimal, but the synchronicity was astounding. That, that we we somehow managed to. I was drawing into. I was trying to manifest a laboratory of a certain type, right. which happened to be next door. He was trying to manifest me, to help him. And uh, the way I describe it in the book is it, almost like a gravitational force. Yeah, where you know we pulled each other into the same orbit in in an unusual way we were both pulling so hard that we pulled ourselves right together, literally right next door to each other.
3: I like the fact that the story doesn't end the way it seems it's going to. Um, Yeah, you know, like we,
1: we we didn't, we didn't, the part of the manifestation was not like, we didn't think of that part.
3: Right. Right, right. We
1: thought of like the beginning part, but we didn't think of the end. So okay, well, it didn't
3: happen which which leads me to something i've i've always been this nagging question i've always had um i i'll tell a similar kind of story i met a woman in alaska in 1983 um she was a friend of a friend i i didn't know her well we just sort of you know would say hello when we passed each other and then 3 years later i was in new york city sitting in a Restaurant in the, on the Lower East Side. Uh, and she walked past my table, and I said, Oh, hey, you. I remember in Alaska. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Great. Three years later, I was in Bangkok walking down an alley, a back alley, looking for a friend's guest house. And there she was again, just her and me on the street. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is incredible. We keep running into each other all over the planet. And, you know, similar to your story, it's like if we had fallen in love and, and you know, <laughs> gotten married and had children, that would be mm-hmm. the most amazing story ever. But we didn't. <laughs> we, we just said, hello. Hey, crazy to see you again. And we kept walking. And what it makes me think is things like that happen and we remember them these strange synchronicities, how many almost happen? How many times has someone that I know walked down the same street as me, but five minutes before I did, or one block over Mm -hmm. statistically, given the number of times that these things happen in our lives, they must almost happen. Um, much, much more frequently. Does that make sense? Right. It does, yeah.
1: And so this, this is one of the ways that, uh, from a skeptical perspective, especially when talking about synchronicities, you can say this is simply a matter of probabilities. That there's, each person has, say a thousand things happen to them during the day and multiply that by eight billion and multiply that by the length of time. And you have an enormously rich, interacting, probabilistic uh, mix where all kinds of strange things will happen. So the fact that it happens, you're right, you remember that you're just startled by this thing. So this is a way of explaining away synchronicities. So this is exactly why, and it it basically becomes an anecdote, right? The the story I told you wasn't planned, or synchronicity, it it happened, Hmm. the thing. So The next stage though is to say, well, was that really meaningful? Was there some kind of manifestation or telepathy or something happening? The only way you really know for sure is to bring it into the lab under control conditions so that you know what the probabilities are. And then you do an experiment and you can judge, well, this this is in alignment with chance or this is not in alignment with chance. So all of the evidence that I pay very close attention to are the laboratory studies where we know that the results are way, way beyond chance. And so that provides a um, plausibility case that at least in some cases where amazing synchronicities happen, they may not have been just chance, but we can't know in those cases. We only know that in principle, there might not have been chance.
3: Right. Now, what if we remove the human mind from this? Are there still phenomenon a phenomena that, um, that provide evidence of some sort of uh, correlation that isn't based upon perception. And what I'm thinking of is the research with random number generators um, that seem to show that the numbers form patterns before major global events. Uh, have you done any of this research, or, or are you familiar with what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah, this the Global Consciousness Project. Yeah, so uh, that was started by Roger Nelson uh, when he was at Princeton. And I worked at Princeton, I knew Roger from those days, and so I, I was an analyst on the Global Consciousness Project from mm-hmm. almost from the beginning. Um, the formal study was based on 500 world events, things like 9/11 and earthquakes and things like that, and the, the assumption was that uh, if there is, if consciousness is has some kind of force-like ability to organize the world, some kind of a negentropic influence, something like that, then and you have an instance where millions of minds are, all become very coherent and paying attention to typically to the news media reporting something live, that maybe something in the world changes, that the mental coherence is reflected by physical coherence. And this is part of an assumption that mind and matter are like two sides of the same coin, that they're not quite the same, but they're very tightly correlated with each other, which is why in neuroscience you can see neural correlates of consciousness. There's a strong correlation, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's causal. Well, in the same token, maybe this happens in the, in the scale of the world, that coherent consciousness is reflected in coherent physicality. So the physical objects that we use to do that measurement are the random number generators, and we can see coherence arise in the generators through the use of pretty simple statistics. And so when something like 9.11 happens, and you can predict that perhaps a billion people are paying attention to it, Uh, their prediction would be that the amount of of randomness that these generators are producing would decrease. It would become more patterned, more coherent. So we did 500 formal events from 1998 to I think 2015, and overall results showed to seven sigma which is which is a, a physics jargon way of, of saying that the odds against chance for the deviations that we saw on the random number generators was roughly three trillion to one, which means this was not a chance outcome. And so the the metaphor I like to use and people immediately say, Well, then how does that work? Well, we don't really know how it works, but we we have a hypothesis which seems to be upheld uh, but the metaphor, which makes it a little bit easier to kind of wrap your mind around it, is that if you want to to detect a tsunami in the ocean uh, you it 's very difficult to do that if you 're simply sitting in a boat w- looking for a big wave because in the middle of the ocean, there are no big waves in the middle of the ocean. a tsunami is like a giant swell it only becomes a giant wave when it gets near the near the shore so The way you would detect a tsunami then is to put thousands of buoys all scattered around the ocean and to monitor the movement of the buoys. And so most of the time the buoys are acting randomly with respect to each other, because they might be miles or hundreds of miles apart. And if you're looking at motions, it's going to be like a whole bunch of random things happening if a tsunami is about to happen, this giant swell will cause lots of buoys to now move in coherence with each other. They're all gonna float up or they're all gonna float in a certain way. And you'll see that immediately because it's not behaving randomly anyway. So by the same token, what we're doing is using these random number generators kind of as though they're floating in an ocean of consciousness. And so when something comes along that creates a disturbance in the force use the Star Wars phrase, Uh, then all of these random number generator buoys floating in the ocean of consciousness react in a way that we can detect because they're now behaving more similar to each other than they should because these generators are designed to produce random bits that are completely independent of every other bit and the devices are completely independent of other devices so there shouldn't be any correlation at all and yet there is. And there it is during these very large scale events.
3: Does the the increased um, coherence in the numbers that are being generated, does that precede the event? Or is that theoretically a result of the focusing of global uh, attention upon the event?
1: That we don't know. All, All we can tell is that occasionally uh, it looks as though there's a change happening before the event unfolds.
3: Before, before hours, the sometimes. event unfolds?
1: Well, or at least before people are aware of the event. Because even when there's something big happening, there's a little bit of a delay uh, before the media gets it and before it's broadcast. So it's conceivable that, it, that the effects we see uh, are happening at the time of the event itself. Uh, although, at least for for one event, like the nine eleven event, we looked at in great detail, that seemed to have a precursor that roughly three hours before. Hmm. So, obviously, three hours before there was the things were underway, uh, but most people didn't know about it. So sure. we we don't know what to make of that. We don't we, we don't make claims about that other than well, there's an interesting observation.
3: Right, right. It seems you know, that there's like sort of a a global uh, scaled up version of the research that we spoke about much earlier with the pre sentiment. Yes. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's since we know that it happens in an individual scale, unconsciously, hundreds of millions of people may have felt that something bad was about to unfold. And if, if you look at the stories of people's dreams and unusual behavior, that day before the events unfolded, it would support this notion that unconsciously, a lot of people felt something, something wrong was about to unfold. Hmm.
3: Fascinating. Uh, Listen, I, uh, I promised you we wouldn't go over an hour and we already have. So I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I very much appreciate you making yourself available. I know many people are asking you for your time, and you've answered the same questions a 1000 times. But uh, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today.
1: Well, I'm always happy to do this. And it's partially for selfish reasons, too. Because I find that uh, even though I do say that the same questions arise, and the same answers are given, uh, it it keeps me sharp. And it (laughs) It's also useful because uh, one thing I find oftentimes within science, uh, especially at the leading edge, you're dealing with things that usually are not well understood. Uh, they're exciting because they're not understood because it's you know you're working at the leading edge of something. And then to describe it in ways that will appeal to other people so they understand it and maybe even excited about it that takes a certain degree of skill because like if i were to tell you the details of what's going on in the global consciousness project you would be bored instantly because they're going to have to start talking about statistics and the the guts of what's going on inside the random generators and people eyes will roll back in their head instantly (laughs) so i i like to describe and pretty close to what's actually going on but use metaphors and use ways of uh, bringing, bringing the listener into what we are actually doing, so that that uh, they kind of get it. And it's in the getting of it, it's the understanding of virtually anything uh, that you gain appreciation about uh, that. Yeah, it really is a scientific effort. It's trying to understand something about the nature of who we are. And uh, what is our role in the universe, all of those really important questions. Uh, and so I figure if I can't get other people as excited about this as I am, then I'm not doing my job very well. So that that's why I appreciate the opportunity to be able to to talk to to anybody.
3: Well, great. I'm I'm happy you chose to do this today. Thank you for your time. Uh, I guess deanraden.com is is the place for people to go and and learn more about your work and buy some of your books and. Uh, check out your your research. It's I'm looking at your website right now. It's uh, very well designed. Mm -hmm. So people can find out about you there. Thank you, Dean. Good. You're welcome. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dean Radin about the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of consciousness, the mysteries of science. It's all very mysterious. I will leave you with that and nothing more other than my mom, my sweet, wonderful, beautiful mom, today's Mother's Day as I record this. I'm not sure when I'll be able to upload it since as I I think I mentioned earlier, the Internet is out here. So I'm just a guy in a house talking to a computer at this point, but hopefully we'll have the Internet back and I'll get this up soon. So uh, happy belated Mother's Day to everybody. And uh, here's my mom and followed by the wonderful Carsey Blanton, who has a new record out. And uh, I've downloaded it. It's fantastic. She's getting a lot of press. Uh, I saw uh, she was heard her uh, new record um, reviewed on NPR uh, on the uh, Terry Gross. um, uh, What's it called? Uh, Fresh Air program. Uh, fantastic. I'm really happy to see Carsi getting some of the attention she deserves and uh, hope she becomes mega famous and, um, you know, develops a cocaine habit and starts banging all her groupies and just, you know, goes full rock star on us. Go ahead, Carsi. why not? If anyone can do it, you can. Uh, I'll play something from her new record, Hopefully in the next episode when I get that damn internet back. All right. Thanks for listening. Here's my mom and Carsey Blanton. I hope everybody's doing great out there. Bye. Okay, Mom. uh, Tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of (laughs) t-shirts. Sex at Dawn. Civilized to Death. Vanthropology. Tangentially speaking, paleo modern and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized to death. Right. We have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom
0: he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you Just because I want to what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Time thinking about a reputation.